If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Does everyone have the notes? Do we need to get any more notes out? We will be uh, looking at Revelation chapter 7. Um, and uh, 17, I'm sorry. I'm a little scattered. See, Anne's not even left yet, and I'm already scattered. All right, Revelation 17. We are getting near the end. Um, and this is, this is a complex, complicated text. And so I'm going to read it, and then we're going to try to work our way through it. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment <clears throat> of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written in a name. Mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and averse abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, uh, it is an eighth but belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive royal authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over the royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So that's just as clear as can be, right? We all have that. There's no need to to teach on that at all. We, We all know what's going on. No questions at all. So 
Uh, I will say that this has been one of those weeks where studying to prepare for Revelation is taking a lot of my time. Um, And so I'm going to try to dig through this. There's a lot of of differing views. Uh, A lot of people have different ideas, and I'm going to try to give you as many of those as we can, and and, uh, we will plow through this the best we can. So first, we need to get to where we were. Remember, there were seven angels. The first angel uh, brought sores. The second angel poured his bowl into the sea, and the sea was uh, completely turned to uh, something that was like a corpse's blood, and then everything in the ocean died. The um, third angel poured out his bowl into the river and the springs of water, and they became blood. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And everyone <clears throat> who experienced this uh, cursed God. They knew that he had power over the plagues, and yet they did not repent or give him glory. They chose to curse God. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and it caused great darkness. Um, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish because of the sores, and, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl, and the river Euphrates died up. And then there were three demons that were sent out, um, three unclean spirits, and they went abroad to, to all the kings of the world and convinced them um, to, to come to Israel to go to war. The kings uh, assembled at the place that's called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl, and a loud voice came from heaven saying, It is done. And then there was a great there was lightning and rumblings, and then a great earthquake, such as there has never been. Uh, so great was the earthquake, and every island fled, and no mountains were to be found. So the literal geography of the earth is changed because of this earthquake. Um, and then 100-pound hailstones fall from the sky. And so we ended last week by saying, just imagine with these seven bowls coming in quick succession, how much destruction has occurred on the earth. The earth's geography has changed. All the mountains have been flattened. Uh, all the islands have been buried. Uh, then hundred-pound hailstones fall from the sky. And we, we talked about how that would mean, literally, that every structure built by man would be laid waste. That uh, unless you were underground or you were in some kind of armored vehicle or in, in some... A uh, weird spot that God could easily, with these plagues, destroy all of humanity. And so we get to the end of this, and you've got the kings who are moving across the Euphrates to go to battle, and then John gives us another vision. So from the end of this text, all the kings are moving to battle, mass destruction. Uh, from here at this point all the way to 1911, John takes a break. So chronologically, this happens and then 1911 happens where Jesus comes back. But he's going to stop here because if you're like me, you're reading 17, or 16 and going, oh my gosh, all this destruction is being poured out and John stops for, to, so that we understand why God is doing this. We're going to look to that tonight in 17 at the spiritual aspect of Babylon. And then in next week we're going to, or not next week, because next week we're doing the, 
we're having our, our Thanksgiving meal, so I'm looking for some deviled eggs here. Um, but uh, the next time we come back to it, we're going to look at the physical aspect of Babylon. Now, throughout this text, uh, John refers to uh, this place as Babylon. <clears throat> there are quite a few people who believe that the literal physical location of Babylon will be rebuilt. And so he's talking about the physical location on the Euphrates um, where Babylon was. It's just, it's in Iraq. It's, um, it, it, it right now is, a, there's a little museum building there and it's, it's just ruins. Um, so uh, a lot of people think that this is, that Babylon will be rebuilt as the capital of the empire that, um, that the Antichrist builds. I personally think that this is representative. I think that this is talking about um, what has gone on from, through earth from our history. So let's back up and look at Babylon. Uh, so if you want to turn with me in your Bible to um, the book of Genesis. And I had it marked and somehow I've lost my mark. Here we go. Okay. So we see that Babylon was started by... Uh, Noah's great-grandson. And so he was called a great warrior, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we read the story of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world, earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us build bricks and Burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here, God had commanded Noah to disperse over the face of the whole earth. And so, man, uh, kind, being led by Noah's great grandson, who should know better, who should know, probably heard from his great-grandfather what the truth was that God had said, go into all the earth and repopulate all the earth. They said, nope, we're going to defy God and we're going to come together and build a great city. And the top of the, the tower of Babel being in the stars, I've, you know, when I was a little kid, the way that the flannel graph has is they were trying to build a really tall tower that reached all the way up to the sky. But we know that the ziggurats uh, that had been built in the town of Babylon were built in such a way that they reflected the, uh, the signs of the sky. And so this could have been an astrological sort of thing. Um, but we know that they were defying God and they were stepping out and saying, instead of the worship of God, we're going to do our own thing. And that's exactly what we see going on in uh, humanity today. I have said multiple times that I think in the light of Romans chapter 1, all of mankind knows that there's a God and that he's a punisher of those who do wicked. We know that there is a God. And we choose to do what we want to do anyway. We choose to defy that God and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. And so Babylon, I believe in all the talk about Babylon, you've got 
Babylon representative of man doing his own thing in defiance of God. You had the exact same language that's used. Okay, so it says, The angel, I will come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's sitting on many waters. You read the exact same language in 21.9 when you read, And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last plague. Same angel. Come and spoke to me. Now listen to the words. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. So I think that what John is doing here, or or God is doing here, is putting down that there are two images. One of a great prostitute and one of a bride. One is represented by the city of Jerusalem, and one is represented by the city of Babylon. One is pure and righteous and holy. That bride is shown wearing all white. The great prostitute is shown, which is representative of all false religion. Now, I want you to think about this and, and, and understand what I'm trying to say. Because if you read commentary from the 15th century all the way up to today, you'll have quite a few people who say that the prostitute is Roman Catholicism. You'll find quite a few that argue that the prostitute is Islam. You'll find quite a few that will argue that it's this thing or that thing. I believe that in reality, there are two religions in the world. And that's it. There is a religion that says... You've got to earn your way. All false religions say, you have got to work a list to get earn God's favor. Here's the list. Now, the lists are different. In Catholicism, you get one list. In um, Islam, you get a different list. In Buddhism, you get a different list. They have different lists of what you've got to do to earn your religion. But it's all dependent on what you do. So I I think I've shared with you guys, I had a a guy uh, who came to me. He was uh, not a a believer in Turkey. And he said, look, every Christian I've ever met has either tried to convert me to Christianity or uh, tried to to sway me from being a good Muslim. I just want to know what Christians believe. Will you teach me what Christians believe? And I said, absolutely, I'm your man. And so we met um, for, for a year, about a year and a half, once a week, for, for an hour or two. And um, I said, okay, so uh, one, one particular night, and we were talking about what we believe about salvation. And he, uh, I had a mission team that had come down from South North Carolina, and they, they, we had driven off somewhere, and I had gotten each one of those men to share their testimony with him. And each one of them shared their testimony, and their testimonies were all more or less the same. I grew up in church, and then this happened or that happened. I was 20, I was 13, one of the guys was 50, and um, I, this happened in my life. God convicted me that I had never made him the Lord of my life, that I had never accepted him as Savior. And then I got saved, and he's like, wait, so if you weren't a Christian before, why did you go to church? And they tried to explain, because my mama made me go to church, or I grew up in a place where I went to church. And he just couldn't get it. So I actually were sitting there in our ki- my kitchen, and he kept not getting it. I said, hold on. And so I called Emily in. I said, Emily, come here. And, and he, 
uh, I said, Emily, tell him how you got saved. And so Emily shared the story about how when she was six years old, she uh, felt really convicted. And she, she, you know, I was a, a preacher, and so she was hearing the gospel. And so I remember her coming and talking to me and Ann and us talking to her and, and saying, well, let's talk about this and pray about it. And, and she eventually made a profession of faith. And then she told him, she goes, and when I was about 13, I remember having an internal struggle of, is this whole Christianity thing, do I just believe this because I believe it, or is this just what my parents have done, and so I don't know about this. And as she struggled with that, she said, I eventually came to the conclusion that I, it was, that I was wanted to follow Jesus. It had nothing to do with my parents, and whether they decided to continue following Jesus or not, I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. And my friend Mahmoud said, I, I, I got to go. And he left. And then he came back uh, the next week. And, and so I literally got a board out. And I, I said, okay, I want you to walk me through what a Muslim has to do to get saved. To, to make it to paradise is how they would word that. He said, okay, so uh, every human being, he said, that goes through life has two angels, one on each shoulder. Um, on your left shoulder, you have, a, it's kind of like a demon. We would call it a demon. It's actually uh, called a jinn, which is where we get the word genie. He's mischievous, but he writes down everything bad that you do. Anything evil that you do or bad, uh, he writes it down. And then you've got a melech, an angel, on this shoulder, your right shoulder, which is why to a Muslim it's rude to turn your left side to him because you're turning your demon to them. Um, you've got an angel on your right side, and he's writing down everything good that you do. And then when you die, you stand in front of a literal gold scale, and your angels hop down with their lists, and they put them on the scale. And if your good outweighs your bad, then you get to go to paradise. If your bad outweighs your good, then you have to go to hell. Now, as he said that and described it to me, I thought to myself, that is what 90% of people in churches think. Now, they don't have little angels that are writing it down, but they think, if I do more good than I do bad, then I'm going to make it to heaven. I asked Mahmoud, I said, okay, in that system, the people in heaven, who gets the glory from that? He thought about it and he goes, me, because I'm the one that did all the good. And so I said, so in the Christian system, um, in, in a biblical Christian system, uh, the, what it is is that uh, God, all of mankind is wicked and evil, and so God saw us and he loved the world so much that he sent his son. And that the way that we come to ha go to get to go to heaven is that we agree with God that we bring nothing of value to the table. And so we're saved Literally, from the wrath of God, we're saved from God, we're saved by God. It's his system entirely. We didn't, have, we didn't come up with the system. God put the system in place, so we're saved from God, we're saved by God. So in that system, Mahmoud, who gets the glory? And he said, well, God does. I said, okay, so from what you know about God, not what I'm telling you, not what Islam's taught you, not what you've seen on TV, from what you know about God, which system would he pick? And Mahmoud said, I got to go. So if you think about it, Islam, false Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, all false religions say the same thing. You've got to earn it and then you get the glory. 
So who's the God of all false religions? Me. I'm the one. In fact, if you listen to people on TV talking today, even people who call themselves Christians say, I decide what's right for me. You can believe what you want to believe if that's what you want to do. But I decide what's right for me. Who's their God? Me. So if you look at hedonism, doing what you want to do, living for the gusto, who's the God in that? Me. Self-gratification, self-glorification is the only false religion there's ever been. It's had different names, it's had different pictures, it's had different ways to explain it, but it's always about me. Christianity stands alone by saying, you are wicked and you need a savior. And so I think that, that this false beast is the same religion from end to end. Is it Catholicism? Yes. Is it Islam? Yes. Is it Baptist churches where people say you got to be a good churchman to go to heaven? Yes. It's all those. Is it the person on MTV who's going woohoo and drinking and living up to the gusto? Yes. It's all the same. And it's all false religion pulls and trends toward money and self-gratification. Look at what happened to Christianity in the, the Middle Ages when before Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis of the Wall. Look at what he's railing against. He's railing against people who call themselves priests who are living high off the hog while people are starving to death. I've been in many cities in South America where there were golden doors on a church in a city where people are starving to death. I've been lots of places in the world, in India and in the Middle East, where there are the only building that is left standing after a minor earthquake is the mosque because it's the only one that has any construction. Why? Because that religion's ultimately talking about me. And I want to look good. And so when we, as we see the prostitute described, she, the, the bride is wearing white, but that prostitute is wearing red and purple, signs and symbols of wealth. She's got a gold cup. She looks attractive. She looks so after the, the rapture, after the, the church is pulled out, doesn't it seem pretty clear to you if, if all of the religions are based on meism? It would be pretty easy to pull them together. The world is in turmoil. There's a bunch of people missing. There's wars and rumors of wars. There, we, we saw in the beginning of Revelation as God sends the two witnesses. Mankind is going to be flipping out. And so this face, false religion unites them. When he sees the prostitute coming, she's... Uh, She's seated on many waters, and then he sees that um, she is carried when he's, the, John is carried away in the wilderness. As I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. So, in the beginning of this vision, she's sitting on the beast. So, if I'm riding a horse, who's in charge? Me or the horse? Well, if you're on top, that, that would seem to be the case. I remember I, um, 
I have an uh, uncle in Coleman County who uh, had a bunch of horses, and I've never really been around horses that much, and horses can sense if you're horsey or not. They know. It's kind of like a dog can tell if you're scared of them and, or don't like them. They, they can sense it. And so he talked me into going riding. And so I got on, on this horse, and this horse rode until it was out of view of my uncle and then threw me off and then stayed about four feet away from me for about an hour and a half. And every time I would get within about three feet of him, he would walk over there. And I wasn't, definitely wasn't in charge. And then when he got tired of that, he let me lead him in. And my uncle's like, did you have a good ride? And I'm like, yes. Um, I'm not going to tell him that I've just spent the whole time chasing this stupid horse around a pasture. When it first starts out, she's on the beast. The, the beast is what's supporting her, and she's seemingly in control of the beast. The beast is going to use this false religion to, to, to consolidate power. It's a symbiotic relationship. If I'm riding the horse, the horse is the one getting me from point A to point B, but I'm also the one that's feeding the horse. It works out together. Um, spending a lot of time at mom and dad's house, I've watched a whole lot of westerns. And um, they always have their horse. You know, he can whistle, and the horse just comes right underneath that, that window, and he can hop right on there. It just seems like a good deal. So it starts out that the, the woman is riding the beast. Now, we know who the beast is. We were introduced to the beast in 13.1, and I saw a beast riding out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. We've already talked about the ten kingdoms coming together, the ten horns, and then seven kings, the seven heads, and how there was a confederation of sorts that the na- nations brought together, that, that, and we're going to get more detail about that. We see that the woman is arrayed in purple and red. She's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and purities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, the image of prostitution has been used throughout the Bible to describe false religion. When God is bringing his judgments down, and I gave you some verses there, and God's talking about the children of Israel running after other gods, frequently the imagery is used of, I am your bride. I took you, Israel, out of nothing, and then you ran after whores. And so that imagery is carried forward. People run from the God that they know. They run to other things. Now, I, I believe that, <clears throat> see if I can explain this, bad behavior gives birth to bad theology. See, we say there are things that we believe, and then if my life doesn't line up with what I say I believe, over time I change what I say I believe. A good example of that would be a situation like with Joshua Harris. He first came out and said, I'm divorcing my wife, I'm walking away from church life, and then he said, well, I would no longer call myself a Christian. And we're going to continue to see, as he, because he's been to several uh, gay marches and, and things along the line, he's going to come out as homosexual. So which came first, the bad theology or the bad behavior? And it's really almost chicken and the egg. Because bad theology gives way to bad behavior. The reason why I don't want to believe that there's a God because I don't want somebody who can tell me what to do. 
A reason why your children bowed up on you, and I know they did because all of my kids have, which is why uh, when a kid is two or three and they look at you and say no, you better show them why no is not a proper response when they're two or three because they need to learn to, to, that they have to follow authority. The reason why that is because it's built in us. We don't want somebody telling us what to do. I'm 50 years old, and I don't like people telling me what to do. And you don't either, because that's a part of the human nature. And so God's saying, these are the things that, make me, that please me. These are the things that if you do them, they will lead to destruction. We don't want that. Who do you think you are to tell me what to do? And so we raise our fist in the face of God to our own destruction, but we do it. And so we change our theology, which is why you can, you can go online and you can find lots of people that mock uh, the idea of God. It, it's always amazed me in the nat- national discourse how people can say that this person has every right in the world to, to be homosexual and have as many wives and husbands and they can marry the cat and they can do whatever they want to do. And those same people will support other false religions that are in complete and total destruction to this ideology. They're antithetical. But it's really anything that's not Christianity. There's two religions in the world. That's it. And so we see here that there's one woman, and she is the one who's given birth to all of the earth's abominations. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Christ. Because all those false religions have all martyred real believers. I remember the, when I first got to know Kika, um, he was just starting his ministry in Bangalore, and he was going out and preaching among the um, Tibetans. And uh, we were prayer partners, is, is how we first got to know each other, and we would send each other prayer requests. And he called me one night and said, uh, I just went to um, this Tibetan village, and I shared Christ with them, and um, they drugged me outside of the village and beat me and left me. And he was so excited that um, he had been able to partake in the, the, the sufferings of Christ. And I'm like, wait, these are Tibetans. Tibetans are nonviolent. They, they don't believe in any kind. Why would they do that? And he couldn't understand my question. He's like, because they hate Jesus. They beat me because they hate Jesus, and I'm representing Jesus. I'm like, yeah, but I thought that as a part of Buddhist religion, they're nonviolent. I mean, they won't kill flies, literally. So why are they taking you out and beating you? He's like, I don't know. I just know that they hate Jesus. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. We're seeing that, that from the, the false religion, there's an utter and complete contempt for Christ. And Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. I think one of the most shocking things as we've watched our culture downgrade over the last 20 years to me, one of the most shocking things is how shocked the church is that the world hates them. It's like the world has spent the last 100 years lying to them, saying that, oh, you're good, you're respectable, it's fine. And now that the blinders are coming off and the world is telling the truth, it's hated you. It's always hated you. If you believe in Christ, the world hates you. Your very presence is abhorrent to them. And we see that in this prostitute. They make war on the lamb 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those whom with him are called are chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages. So we, we see that millions of people throughout human history will follow her. And on this day, uh, at the first part of the, the Great Tribulation, many will follow her. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Now, isn't this interesting? So this conglomeration of false religions that comes together at the first part of the, the tribulation, after the beast claims to be raised from the dead and the false prophet demands that worship of him occurs, now the Antichrist hates the false religion. This mashup of of, of Catholicism and fake Christianity and Islam. And now this prostitute that's, that was in a symbiotic relationship to bring the beast to power, now he hates her. And all the beast keeps being described as him who was, who was not, and who is, is talking about, and we, we've already gone into detail over the fact that he will, whether he's faking it or whether it's real, in the eyes of the world, he died and is raised from the dead. And the false prophet, after that happens, will demand that the world worships him. And so the angel here keeps referring to the beast as the beast who was, who is not, and who will be. But then, and one of them gives the caveat, who is going to destruction. He may be who, who was and who is not and then who will be, but he ain't going to last. In fact... We see some details of how the Confederation of Nations come together that we weren't shown before, of those nations coming together and being in charge for an hour and then giving, turning their authority over to the beast. So whether I don't believe it's a literal hour, I think it's saying for a short period of time, this Confederation of Nations, this, this UN, the, the League of Nations, whatever it's going to be, will take control of the earth, but pretty soon is going to turn control over to the Antichrist. So for an hour, they got it. We're Charles in charge. But the Antichrist leaves them in a place, and we see that the Antichrist comes from amongst them because it was seven heads, and then what the text says is that, and then an eighth. And so the Antichrist is actually going to be one of the leaders of one of those nations, and then he's going to step out and take control. And so we have more details here about how that time is going to come together. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so what we see happening is, is that this false religion is part of what the Antichrist and the Confederation of Nations use to come to power. Just like people love to talk about peace all the time. And Jesus warned us. People say peace, peace, and there is no peace. And so once they come to power and the Antichrist has this false resurrection, now the, the false prophet is going to demand that he alone, the Antichrist alone, is worshipped. And they will destroy this false church. Now, what we talked about just a few minutes ago, where's a lot of wealth in this world? I read not too long ago where it was like something like, you know, $15 trillion is in, in the Vatican's bank. 
and that's just one religion. And all the religions of the world, if they come together, that's a lot of money. In, in Muslim countries, if there's ever a mosque built on a piece of property, it can never be anything else. And so there's property all over the Middle East that in the middle of a thriving metropolis that can't be anything other than a mosque. In fact, in Ankara, the city that we lived in, the government had put a moratorium. No more mosques can be built. So, Because what happens is, is when people die, if they leave their wealth to, uh, to build a mosque, they think that that gets them special brownie points to get into heaven. That's more good works, right? Going on their good work side. And so everybody that, that had any money at all who died wanted to leave money to, for a new mosque. So there's new mosques popping up all over the place. And the city of Ankara was saying, wait, we got to have businesses. And so no more mosques could be built. If you want to leave your money for something, it's got to be to refurbish mosques. And so in the three and a half years that we lived there, the mosque down the street from us was torn down and rebuilt twice because somebody died and left money, and this imam got a new building program. Having participated in a building program in a church, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but that's what they were doing. And so the beast turns on the, the, uh, the great prostitute and destroys her. And now, as we come into um, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Okay, I hope, wow, I hope that I describe this chapter in such a way that you understand what's going on. Um, and I'm glad to get chapter 17 behind me. Father God, Lord, I pray that you apply this to our heart, that we are always on the lookout for false religion in our own heart. And Lord, I pray that you help us to serve you better with this information. In Jesus' name, amen.